In the wake of the healthcare.gov project, the United States government learned some lessons about software engineering. For example, hiring contractors to build a long-term service is not a viable strategy for building good software. 18F is an organization that is building the 21st century digital government in the spirit of America's top tech companies and finding success through engineering with a long-term dedication and focus. In today's episode, I had a chance to speak to Sarah Allen, a presidential innovation fellow who was there at the birth of 18F. She explained in particular the pains that the government was facing and the ways that 18F is contributing to bringing technology to arguably the most challenging industry to modernize, the government. Sarah Allen is a software developer and entrepreneur who spent nine years at Macromedia, creating products like Flash, Shockwave, and After Effects. And since then, she has worked at several companies in software development. She currently works with 18F, which is part of the United States Digital Service, otherwise known as the USDS. Sarah, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's great to be talking with you this morning. At 18F, you are working on building the 21st century digital government. That is the high-level goal, building the 21st century digital government. Describe that goal to me in more granular terms. Um, I'd be delighted to, but first I have to say that I do not speak for the U.S. government. In case anybody was confused, um, (laughs) I'm not a representative on this podcast. I'm speaking in my personal capacity. That said... um, I've been delighted to be involved with the uh, creation of these new digital services. And um, they're, when we say a 21st digital, uh, century government, um, what we're seeing is that people are using their smartphones, they're online, and we have the potential to actually deliver better services to our people at dramatically lower cost if we just do what is common practice in the industry. We are a country that created Amazon and Twitter and Facebook, and we can't file our tax returns online. We have to hire people. Like There are so many problems that are technically simple, but challenging at the scale the government does them. And so the other thing is there are people who don't have access to technology. And if we let some people access services with technology, we'd have more staff to help the people who don't have technology. And at some point, I think, you know, all of the young people are going to grow up and we'll all be connected and it will be normal to um, fill out forms on our smartphones and be able to access government services 24-7. So, you know, as you mentioned, United, the United States, you know, we've built Amazon and Twitter and these other companies. And 18F, which is the division of the USDS that you work at, is built in the spirit of America's top tech startups. At a fundamental level, is there any difference between building a successful company versus building a successful government organization? I think there is. Um, There are a lot of things in common. However, we're building things for for our colleagues. So it's analogous to being um, the software services arm of a large company where um, you're you don't have to make a profit, but you have to do good work that is moving the company forward. So in that way, we're not, we don't have the same goals as a startup, of course, um, because we're, we're trying to move the, the, for the mission of the, you know, the United States of America. Um, and we are working within an organization that is, um, 2.7 million employees. That doesn't include the military. And so that's an enormous organization that we're working within. And in many ways, uh, private sector dynamics happen because it's so big. But in other ways, 
we have um, an opportunity and an obligation to create some things that will always have a, quote, small market, right? Some of our things are for federal employees. We could save billions of dollars by doing things for a relatively small number of people. And that's, you know, it's, it's very different from a software business. Okay, so we'll get into some of the tactics of how that works, but let's first discuss 18F. What does the name 18F mean? It's because we were started at the General Services Administration headquarters, which is at 18th and F Street in Washington, oh, okay. D.C. Okay, and, and the tagline is delivery is the strategy. What does that mean? So that um, is actually borrowed from the... Um, the UK government digital service where they had the strategy is delivery. We just turned it around a little bit um, <laughs> to emphasize delivery. The, the point is that you can't really understand these new techniques of lean and agile and human centered design by being taught them. You have to do them. So we deliver digital services in partnership with agencies and our government colleagues so that they get it, right? So that they really see how it feels. Agile isn't, um, you know, waterfall carved up into two-week delivery timeframes. <laughs> but it's right. hard, okay. hard to tell from the outside. So so I think what you're getting at here is that there's often this narrative around government versus business where government maybe inherently has to move slower. And like that's some sort of axiom. And it's not actually the case is what we've found in the early experiments with the USDS and the success stories. So, you know, you're forecasting, like, do you think that this slowness to the bureaucracy is, is that something that you can change by with this, this, the spirit of the delivery is the strategy that you've talked about? I think certainly in the executive branch, that's absolutely true. I think um, policy and legislation, there's a certain measured pace that that ought to proceed in, right? Mm. Um, we're working in an area where, if you know, you, if you recall the Constitution, you have the legislative, <laughs> the judicial, and the executive branch. This um, area of the government, which is the, you know, where all the staff, you know, most of the staff, not the Congress people, not the judges, um, but most of the staff work is just about executing on the business of our government. And that ought to happen at the pace of business, at the pace of technology, at the pace of humans. Mm. So does it have something to do with the with the size of the constituency that you have that has some uh, that has some limiting effect on the pace that you can move at? Well, I think that um, there is that's a that's an interesting question. I do think, um, I think that the main limiting factor is that most of the procedures and regulations were designed when we traveled across the country on horseback. <laughs> right. And um, the, the, I think that changing regulations is slow, right? And taking advantage of new technology has been challenging, even though the government has done all sorts of innovative things. I mean, the reason we have the internet, right, is because a lot of it was government funded. The mm. reason we have GPS is because the government puts satellites in space. Sure. We have what we have because of the government. We just can't some, we have not historically done the government's business routinely, like in an innovative way, right? We haven't given that, attention to how the government does its business. Yeah. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's important to note that, you know, we have these smartphones that we haven't had for a very long time. So it's hard to know how to reframe what government should look like with that level of, of uh, consumer level computing. So in an ideal world, what is the relationship between politics and software? In my mind, politics is not does not equal government. Oh, okay. So there's um, the there's a set of things you know, like I wouldn't say that adhering to the Constitution is like political, right? 
that we have certain rights in our country and we have over time um, decided to provide certain services to our people. And protecting those rights and providing those services is just the business of, of government. It's not, it's not politics. There are edges to that where there's debate about like really the smallest percent of what the government does. Should we do more of this or less of that? If you look at it writ large, if you look at the whole budget, if you look about everything the government does, what is like top of mind in the you know political sphere is a tiny portion of what the government does. Mm, okay, interesting. So we, we have talked about some of the high level. I want to talk about 18F in a more low-level tactical way. So you're working on Open Opportunities, which is a program to foster cross-agency collaboration. What is an example of a way in which two agencies could collaborate more closely? So this is really um, the way that it's working today is about individual employees collaborating. So the most common use cases are um, almost every agency has like a weblog, Twitter account. They, they are responsible for publishing documents there's actually regulations about publishing them in plain language. It's um, there's a lot of writing that needs to happen, and often the person, people responsible for that, um, are looking for other voices. So guest blogging is a very popular um, uh, type of opportunity where you'll have individuals that want to get into communications, but they don't have that experience. They don't have bylines, so they'll um, sign up to do those tasks. Their manager will, uh, you know, they'll it'll be part of their career growth path. And then for some, another agency, they're getting their, their mission work done and they're helping a federal colleague. So those are sort of very simple. And then, then there's on the technical side, there'll be, I need a stand up a WordPress instance, or I need to, you know, change, I need a widget for this. There's, um, there's a, a wide spectrum of tasks and uh, of course, graphic design tasks as well, um, where, you see the real power of this is where there's a need to have um, people bring something from lots of different agencies. So recently, the White House wanted to create a crowdsourcing toolkit because a lot of different agencies are experimenting with this idea of crowdsourcing information. Um, I mean, it's kind of... Uh, Meta, because Open Opportunities is itself a crowdsourcing platform, that the um, person from the White House who was leading this effort posted an opportunity and said that they wanted to pull together a group of people to create this toolkit. So people who were had, had individual separate crowdsourcing initiatives across the government, dozens of these people across dozens of agencies, brought their own particular um, narrow expertise and then learned about everybody else's. So everybody is learning about what the different people across government are doing, in this case, with a very similar um, sort of methodology slash technology, and pulled together a publication that then was shared with the world. I see. And, and what we're, we, the other example of that would be if um, there was a topical thing, right, where multiple agencies actually work on the same issues. Um, so somebody might be developing a report or investigating a certain topic. And you could imagine that there might be a scientist from health and human services and somebody from housing and urban development and somebody from, you know, a different agency, Department of Energy, who might all be touching on the same um, societal so concern. So when I think about collaboration and I think about like modern collaboration tools for a technology company, I think like Slack, Google Docs, Trello, are, are these things, can these things be used within the government or are, do you have to, uh, or can, can you not use them? Well, we actually at 18F have um, used all those tools. So they can be used within the government, but every individual agency has to approve the um, terms of service. There's specific clauses that are required by the federal government in a terms of service so that once one agency has adopted a technology, it's then easier for another agency because 
they've made you know, mm. one agency has made sure it's federally compliant, but then each agency has its own separate legal counsel, and they have to just review and approve every terms of service that is agreed to by that agency because they're separate entities that are authorized by Congress separately. And in very small, it wouldn't, to my knowledge, happen from a piece of software, but they do have different authorities. Can, can you talk about the context in which 18F was created? Like, what was the conversation and what was the, did, did you have the idea for the mission? Uh, was the idea for for the mission of 18F understood up front or was it more like a group of people that just wanted to get together and work on government problems and they gradually settled on a mission or what, like, what's the origin story? Uh, I actually heard the very early part of the origin story recently. I was a Presidential Innovation Fellow in um, 2013. And um, at that time, there were 43 of us and about a dozen, maybe 18 of us were um, there for six months. And I have a family in San Francisco. So after my six months, I was definitely coming back here and done with government service. However, a number of people were working on had moved to DC and they were working on, or maybe they originally were in DC and they were working on things that they really saw as needing to survive past that six months, or they just felt like, okay, we're not done yet. There's still more to do here. So it was, um, the idea was sparked during the government shutdown of 2013. Uh You may recall um, that we had a crisis in Congress, as seems to happen almost every year, and the government actually shut down for, I think, a little over a week. And during that time, um, many of the Presidential Innovation Fellows were forbidden to work. So I was, um, at that time, a Smithsonian Trust employee, um, which is a private public organization. So I was allowed to work because um, the funding was, you know, because of funding re- rules, like it, depending on the funding rules, you could or could not work. Um, but there were, but most of the, the fellows uh, were forbidden from working. And so they were hanging out together, talking about what they were going to do after December. And they came up with this idea of staying at GSA and, um, and continuing this work of changing government. Okay. And I want to put this in more historical context because ATF is an organization within the USDS. And when was the USDS formally created? Like, what was Actually, the story behind that? I didn't want to correct you earlier, but ATF is a separate organization from the United oh, States Digital Services. Oh, I'm, I'm totally sorry. That's okay. All right. I misunderstood. Um, so the USDS was created after 18F. Like, kind of a funny story. Um, in, 18F wanted to call itself the U.S. Digital Services, but at that time, the the copyright to that term or the trademark was owned by the post office. So our lawyers said we couldn't call ourselves the U.S. Digital Service. Mm. And um, they put forth 20 names. 18F was the only name the lawyers approved. So they called themselves 18F. And at that Mm. time, it wasn't at all clear whether they would be able to do anything right, that, that they had, um, they secured authorization from GSA to provide services to other agencies in a cost reimbursable basis. So this is something that- Okay, I'm sorry, what is GSA? (laughs) The General Services Administration was started during the Truman administration. One of the fun things about working for the government is now I know a lot more about U.S. history. (laughs) Um, So it was started um, to- optimize how the government spent money. And its first thing that it did was the public building service. So every federal building in the United States is run by the General Services Administration. And then they rent out offices to different agencies so that if you go to a federal building, you could you know, see the Department of Agriculture and the Social Security Administration in the same building. And that was um, not only a cost savings, but a convenience for the citizens and fostered cross-agency communication. Okay. So the second thing they did was the acquisitions where if you buy, they can buy in bulk because they buy from multiple agencies. And then this is really a new um, initiative to say, well, let's do that from a digital service standpoint. Mm, Okay. 
Well, okay. So, so since your your ear is uh, on the ground somewhat to uh, things that are going on in the cross section of government and technology, I am. I mean, I, I do have some curiosities about your take on on stuff that's going on there. So, like healthcare.gov, for example, that seems to have been a blessing in disguise because the government you know, tried to spin this project off with a bunch of contractors and the project fell off the rails. And then with all that fallout, it seems like people in government kind of learned, oh, you can't hire a bunch of mercenary contractors and expect the job to get done. Uh, and I mean, do you, th- do you think that's a widely, that is a, uh, that was an important lesson for the government to learn and that that has led to these things like the USDS and per- I mean, was well, healthcare.gov led directly to the USDS because Mikey okay. really, Mikey Dickerson ended up really leading the healthcare.gov effort under Todd Park, um, our former CTO. And he was a site reliability engineer from Google and just came in and um, did what he felt was obvious, but was a different, like it wasn't something that the government did. And a lot of it was not that the contractors were not interested in doing those things or not um, hadn't suggested them, but they frequently things happen because contractors are brought in and told what to do. And then they're not authorized to change the rules. So uh, like, for example, it used to be considered illegal to use AWS in most agencies. Um, So they literally had a open line to the white house and if anything got in their way, they could escalate it to any agency. And it was multiple agencies involved in healthcare.gov, if you recall. So sometimes getting things done was very hard because a decision would have to happen across multiple agencies at very high levels. So, um, so that, that process of understanding what it took to recover healthcare.gov, the fact that it happened in in government times, very short amount of time, and using like not rocket science. Like Mike has <laughs> given a lot of talks about like this is just like it's normal procedure at these high scale sites. And um, you know he he always talks about he says things like well, on the planet that I come from, <laughs> this is normal. <laughs> oh, that's funny. What? What is the what was the stigma against AWS? Well, there's um, there are security rules, right, that we have to follow that are very important. So it, it was a matter of going through and validating that mm. um, it could conform to security rules. And then in some cases, there um, were regulations that got in the way, like you know they were well-meaning regulations that were probably created in the, I don't know, 60s, 70s, or 80s, but like the Veterans Administration had a regulate has a regulation that says that if there is a security breach, you have to take the hard drive and put it in an evidence bag. (sighs) So then it's against the, they can't conform to the regulation if they could put anything on the cloud. Right. Right. You You can't can't put a data center in an evidence bag. Exactly. So these are just turtles you have to work through And what happened was um, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is in the White House, formerly led by Todd Park as CTO and now led by Megan Smith, gets involved in unsticking these things. Mm, And that has been a magical thing. And now, um, you know, they have like a lawyer who works for them now. It's great. So... Okay, but this uh, Amazon is now building a cloud entirely for the U.S. government. Do you think this is uh, like what is the future of this of this relationship between technology companies and government? Is this um, you know is this a, is this a promising roadmap or is this like Amazon or Google or whatever will become another Booz Allen? Well, we try. Um- pretty hard to, and there's a lot of rules that mean that we can't play favorites with technology companies, um, even when there appears to be a clear leader. Uh, One of the things Mm. that, one of the great things about the way we do things at 18F is that we we are repeatedly creating 
and modifying websites, creating new websites for other federal agencies. So over and over again, we're having to go through the very time-consuming security checklist process. And so that's the probably the thing that we started first on, you know, because in order to launch anything, we have to do this security checklist process, which is important, right? Because the federal government websites do get attacked by foreign countries, um, or, you know, maybe they're, you know, but the traffic's coming from wherever, who knows what's going on, but we don't want our services to be attacked. We don't want our PII to be um, vulnerable and you know, and the government has not been doing so great on that. And we felt it was very, very important we get that right. And so we made it a precondition that we host on AWS. Right. Um, but then gradually we started to do, you know, you have to do all this tooling. And it was, you know, we have to, we were, I was writing like chef scripts for my, you know, for open opportunities at the beginning. And then everybody was like creating their own deployment things. And we ended up, um, largely because of the kind of top-notch people that we have here, just being, oh, well, this is kind of idiotic. We're spending all this time doing this, all this stuff manually. And there's this open source um, platform as a service called Cloud Foundry. So one of our engineers just stood it up and said, hey, let's try this. And now all of our websites are deployed on Cloud Foundry. And it stood up for the federal government. And we're, we're going to be offering that to other agencies as a service, and it will end up being much cheaper than an analogous service that we would go to a vendor for. Cloud Foundry runs on Pivotal Labs servers, or? Pivotal Labs is a contributor to it, um, a big contributor. I think they have 100 people working on it, but um, it is an open source platform, so we have it installed. So you have your your own servers? Yeah. Well, it's on AWS. Oh, it's on AWS. What okay, that means it. is that if in the fullness of time, AWS turned out to be not the right answer for us, mm, we could move on to a different thing. Right. So this is the layer of offboarding you can have. So, okay, that's great. So you get this. So you get the security feature. So one thing I was going to ask is like, has the dialogue managed to shift from because like for a while there was this there was this perception and I think there is still this perception in places like banking or whatever that AWS is somehow less secure than on prem, which is not correct as I understand. It sounds like you're like you want to be on AWS specifically because it's more secure. Um, so and what what it sounds like you're saying is that you get the features the security features of AWS, but you also get modularity with the um, God, I'm sorry, uh, Cloud Foundry. Y- yes, and I think that the key thing to know about security, which I'm sure you know, um, most of the listeners probably know, is that we live in a very dynamic world, right? The biggest vulnerabilities are at the application lever- layer typically or an operating system that hasn't been upgraded or a library that hasn't been upgraded. And so we need to move at the pace of technology when it comes to keeping our software secure. And mm-hmm. if you have physical boxes that have to be, you know, administered separately, that is a huge risk mm-hmm. in terms of being able to upgrade software when a vulnerability is found. And that is the key difference in this virtualization we call the cloud. Mm. How, how long do you think it'll be till we have a uh, technologist president? Well, it is my hope that the next generation, not the generations that are in school now, but the one after that, that every child will be a technologist. We need to be able to understand technology the same way that we need to be good writers. Now, everybody who graduates from high school is not a good writer, but every president has been. And so I think that this is a fundamental skill. We need to understand technology the way that we understand photosynthesis. I have never once in my adult life used my knowledge of photosynthesis, (laughs) but it helps me understand the world. When I learn about 
climate change, it's because of what I learned in high school that mm. leads me to understand the real problems of our world. So I right. think that technology needs to be one of, you know, they need to be nouns and verbs that are understood by our populace. Right. So does that mean teaching every kid to code or what exactly? I think every kid should learn to code um, where the goal is to is um, learning problem solving. It's a tool for problem solving. Mm. And um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is when I learned to code, which was a little while ago, um, <laughs> it was um, in the, I think it was in like the 80s. And it was the sort of common thinking that in the future, everyone would need to have to learn to code to use a computer. And then, um, and so there was this frenzy about like teaching kids to code. There were like computer camps and stuff like that. And then everybody, then the Mac came out and Windows came out and people realized that you didn't have to know how to code to use a computer. And I think that that, that changed the narrative. Mm. And what's really interesting now is um, there's a, the learn to code movement is focused on um, like software development. But I think the opportunity is really in um, being able to use these tools because every single tool that I use has some advanced feature that's like coding, you know, using a spreadsheet, certainly using Microsoft Word styles, like those mm. end up being like, you have to really understand hierarchy and ha like, it's almost like a declarative syntax. There's, you know, your mail filters. Now you can hook up your calendar to your web page if you know just a little bit of things that those, that glue is coding. And we have to teach our kids right. how to be facile with that type of tool. Right. Okay, cool. So so this is a great segue into one of your past positions, which was working with Bridge Foundry and Rails Bridge, which is, uh, well, Bridge Foundry is an organization that partners with underserved communities to create effective environments for learning technical skills. Tell me about the formation and the evolution of Rails Bridge and Bridge Foundry and, and your involvement in those. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually, I'm currently serving as a volunteer program director of Bridge Foundry. So I continue okay. to be okay. involved. Excellent. Um, so Rails Bridge was started in 2009. Um, I had uh, learned Rails and Ruby in late 2008 um, when I wanted to do consulting. And my first project happened to be a Ruby on Rails project. And so I taught myself Ruby on Rails. And uh I started to go to meetups, and my, the first Ruby meetup I went to, there was one other woman in like 70 or 80 people, and I went up and introduced myself, and um, that was Sarah May, and um, I was, despite be, it being always odd to be, you know, to personally double the number of women in the room, I felt that the people, the men there really treated me as an engineer, not as a woman, because you go to some places and then, you know, they think you're a recruiter or they think you're somebody's girlfriend or <laughs> you must be in marketing. And that's like, you know, that's a fairly uncomfortable experience, but I didn't yes. find that in the Ruby community. And I felt that the online spaces where I was learning were very friendly. And then I went to um, the, there was a local conference, um, the Golden Gate Ruby conference, and there were 200 people and six women. Now I was really used to being there being few women, I came from you know the um, proprietary world of software. I did a lot of graphics. Um, we had like a in my prior company, we had a Java-based um, platform, and in those environments, you know there was always ten percent to twenty percent women. Um, like you go to a conference and you could feel that you're in the minority, but it wasn't like you were the mm. only. You could right. see other women scattered in the room. Whereas like at one point at the Golden Gate Ruby conference, I was sitting in the balcony and I could not see another female in the whole place. And um, I got to talking to Sarah May in a break and I was telling her that I had been meaning to learn Ruby on Rails for three years. You know, I mean, I always have a list of things I want to learn, right? At that time, it was like, 
should I learn Ruby on Rails? Should I get better at Python? Because our docs have a Python stack. You know, there was um, a number of like interesting things going on with like Skype had just had plugins and I was like an AV person. Like, should I do, you know, there was always like, there's always like five or six things that I'm like, oh, I want to learn that thing. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you know, you can only pick one every so often. And I thought there's lots of other women like me. And if we just borrowed somebody's conference room and taught a class in Rails, I bet that we could find five or 10 women a month who would do this. And so we did the math that way. Like if we got 10 to 20 women every month to show up at a workshop and we had them every month for a year, we could triple the number of women at this conference the following year. (laughs) So that was our idea. And there was... um, so we were doing this workshop thing in parallel. My kid was in elementary school and I was, um, volunteering to teach, uh, computer, um, programming classes. So I was using shoes, which I actually learned about at that conference, which was a really fun environment for teaching kids that, um, happened to use Ruby and it was like a graphical environment. It's really fun. Um, what is shoes? Is that like a subset of Ruby and it's all of Ruby, but it had, um, so it was created by why the lucky stiff, do you recall this character? So this, in the Ruby community... I'm shaking my head if listeners don't know. In the Ruby community, there was a um, a persona called Why the Lucky Stiff that didn't have, like... There was no human identity associated with Why the Lucky Stiff, oh. but he was very prolific. He wrote okay. a lot of things. He made up songs. He um, had a whole bunch of open source libraries that he created, some of them very, very useful, some of them silly. And... Um, and one of the things that he created was shoes, which had which ran on Windows and Mac. And so that was a really important characteristic that it ran on Windows and um, and it had graphical user interface for Ruby. And I think Ruby is a good learning language because because um, there isn't a lot of uh, extra syntax for kids to learn because like they you know type they can type. They can find the letters pretty well, but all the special characters are um, not things that kids are familiar with. So the mm. you know not having the extra parentheses and things um, was helpful, I think. And um, and then um, having this sort of whimsical language called choose, I think, um, was fun for kids. Yeah, um, yes. But anyhow, why the lucky stiff um, disappeared several years later, um, <laughs> as uh, somebody likened it to uh, one of those like Tibetan sand paintings. Ah. Persona was on the world and then disappeared. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe he became Startup L. Jackson. Jackson. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so he went by Y, and um, somebody joked that um, he was going to reemerge working on Pearl 6 and call himself Win. Um, but anyhow, it was like a funny thing in the Ruby community. Um, now it's, uh, I think that the successor to that is kids Ruby, um, where, uh, that's a, that's a similar environment that, um, has kind of been rewritten from scratch. Uh, so the origins of Railsbridge. So I was working on this, uh, teaching kids to code and Sarah May and I had decided to do this workshop. And then in the middle of that, there was a, um, unfortunate event where um, a a fellow had some slides in his talk that were um, not what you'd expect to see at a technical conference, um, and uh, which I, I've mentioned this to some people outside our industry who are shocked that um, people put screens of scantily clad women um, on conference slides. But um, I wrote a blog post about that. And this was, I had never seen a blog post about such a thing. And I'd never heard that this actually had happened since like the 40s. And I was like, really nervous about doing that, because I was new in the community. So I wrote a blog post about how um, I didn't think that this, um, you know, these slides were particularly appropriate. And, um, and there was like a whoosh uproar as happens on Twitter and, um, the internet and like Gamergate. It was what was different. It was, it was maybe an analogous uproar, but what was amazing to me and heartwarming 
is that after an initial, like there was, um, there was an initial reaction, which was, you know, sort of the usual hubbub and retweets and so forth. And then, um, David Hannermeyer Hansen, unfortunately, um, uh, sent a tweet that said, uh, I wish there were more pictures of beautiful women on slides at conferences. <sighs> and that was what like kind of blew up the internet. And, um, what was heartwarming was the Ruby community's response was for people to step up and put it in a different context. So one guy was like, I don't want to get involved in the turmoil, but I think that there's a problem in our industry. So I'm going to start a fund and use it for teaching <laughs> women and kids to code. And this is before Railsbridge, right? And so he put, you know, 250 bucks or something in this fund. And it was like one of these pledgy things where other mm. people could contribute to. So he was like, I want to take the conversation into a different direction. And then um, uh, there was an amazing blog post, which was um, Stand Up and Be Counted by um, an engineer who was a dad. And he said, I want to, um, I don't want to comment on what's going on, but I want to stand up and say that I want to have conferences that when my daughters grow up, I would want them to go to. And that's the kind of community that I want to create. And mm -hmm. so there was, there were numerous, very positive, affirmative posts about creating gender equality, about creating safe spaces that transformed the conversation in a way that was, um, I, I just did not expect as well. What I don't understand is the type of person that says, I don't want to get involved with this, but I'm setting up a website or I don't want to get involved with this, but I'm setting up a fund. Like, aren't those kind of like, like, why don't you just get involved in the conversation? I, mean, I think because the conversation was, DHH is an idiot. <laughs> um, you know, or you are, right. what do you mean you're, this is sexist? What do you mean? Like you're wrong. Uh, you're doing it wrong. You're bad. Like uh, the okay. conversation. Literally not get involved in the waste of time <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. Where you're having, having low impact. And also not be involved. Like, let's not criticize the person who sparked this. The people mm. who sparked the conversation. That bad things just happened, okay? Let's stop talking about the bad incident and start talking about that we have a widespread problem that we need to fix. Uh, so interesting, because that is... So I did a week of shows about women in tech, and I was, like, trying to figure out how... Like, how do I approach this properly? Because, like, when I was doing some preliminary research for it, I was like... God, this situation is bleak. And, you know, so the first, you know, kind of early interviews I was doing, I was like coming at it from a position of bleakness. And that's probably not the most helpful angle. The most helpful angle is like starting from the a discussion. If you're, if you're having a, well, the conclusion I came to was this, my strategy became discuss technology with women. If you want to do a show about, if you want to do shows about women in tech, don't start with, so what do you think about the bleakness of the women in tech phenomenon? Like, right? I mean, do, do you, does that sound correct to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I, I was actually just um, updating. Uh, I was updating my about with like my speaking engagements for the last year. And <laughs> I have like a CV that I like update and I had press highlights and I was noticing that um, I think out of like 10 like that I had on my list there, eight of them are about women in tech. Right? Yeah. Like, so that I'm somebody who has created things that almost every human on the planet who has a computer has used. However, the press about me is about my gender. Like yeah. there's something um, odd about that. I think that engineers often don't get written about. So, it's, I mean, do you know the engineer, the lead engineer on, you know, name your favorite product? Most right. people don't. So, you know, if somebody doesn't want to write about my engineering exploits, fine. However, if I'm newsworthy, I would like to be newsworthy for my actual accomplishments mm. rather than being okay. the woman who did that. Right. Okay, cool. So, I, I mean, I was going to talk about that near the end, but I'm, I'm glad that we touched on the 
the women in tech conversation stuff. But let's go back to, to Bridge Foundry a bit. What, you know, um, you, you told me the origin story. Well, where is? Let me wrap up the origin story, and I'll just oh, oh sure, quickly. go for it, please. So, Rails Bridge was really started by Mike Gunderloy, who created a who a list of all, every person who'd said a positive thing about how to change the situation. Mm. And this was in the three weeks up to RailsConf that this whole hubbub happened. And so he really pulled together that conversation and created this organization, RailsBridge. And then Sarah May, I said, so, and the other rule that he came up with, which I really, really liked, was we're only going to do things as an organization if somebody steps up and says, I will do that. So you have, there's lots of ideas but we will announce that we're making this organization before RailsConf and so that anybody else can, so we don't want this to be this secret private group thing. Like we'll open up the list and um, we will announce these initiatives, right? We are, the, we are the collection of these initiatives, but we will only do the initiatives where somebody steps up and says, I will do that. So I said I'd do the Teaching Kids Initiative. Sarah May said she would do the workshops so that I didn't have to lead two things. Um, and we set off to do the workshops and then it was the workshops that really took off. So the first workshop we spent three weeks brainstorming how we would get find 10 to 20 women. And then when we finally planned it, um, we had a wait list in less than 24 hours. Wow. wow. And the narrative at the time, if you remember in 2009, there was a lot of, um, there w- wasn't as much conversation about w- why women where where are the women um, but the conversation that did exist, often um, people would say, um, well, maybe women just aren't interested, you know, because it is kind of geeky and boring and stuff and technical, and maybe women are interested in more important things. And um, what was great about the demand for the workshops and every single workshop um that year and almost every workshop that we've ever had across the globe has had a wait list. And um, a year later, nobody was saying maybe women aren't interested. Right. So it was extremely influential. Um, Okay. So where is it at today? So in 2013, um, we noticed that a lot of people were creating similar organizations and crediting RailsBridge for that model. But we really thought that there was power in being one organization, but that the name RailsBridge alienated people. We'd done things in JavaScript and Ruby, and it was called Rails because it came out of the Rails community. But then um, it seemed that people didn't, like the Python people, and you know, didn't want to be affiliated with a Rails organization. And so we, re- we refactored the organization, um, calling the bigger, the sort of, organization that did everything, Bridge Foundry, and then just the workshops, RailsBridge. And then that renaming was very successful because we have, um, we defined the idea that somebody could make a new bridge. And so we have Mobile Bridge and Closure Bridge and Go Bridge. And now we have a model where anyone who has a new technology can create a new bridge. Okay, got it. So, so that makes sense. So, if people want to check it out, they can look up Rails. Sorry, they can look up Bridge Foundry or Rails Bridge. Um, so, you know, our time is drawing near, but I want to go back in time even further. We, uh, you know, speaking to what you said, you know, we haven't talked much about the technologies that you were building early on in your career, which are pretty interesting. I mean, twenty years ago, you were working at Macromedia, which developed Flash and Shockwave and lots of other technologies that I personally have used. Um, I remember I made a music video in Flash that was pretty fun and like really enjoyable to make. Uh, So take me back to that time. What was it like to build a technology product in 1995? Well, 1995 was a fun time. It was the um, beginnings of the web. I mean, if you recall, the web standard was released in 1993. Um, I actually went to Macromedia because I wanted to learn about the internet. At that time, most people didn't had never used a web browser. Some most people in college had used one, if especially if they were in technology. But um, I had to actually get a friend of mine to show me a browser before I went into an interview. Right, like I literally went into interview at Macromedia to create web technology when I had seen a browser once. 
And we would, um, so Shockwave was the first technology to be developed at Macromedia. Flash was developed in parallel at a startup company and then acquired in 96. And in 1995, there was um, Netscape um, 1.2 was out, right, that I think supported images. That was big. And um, people were talking about how, like, maybe images would, like, ruin the web because it was going to, like, use up all the bandwidth on the Internet. And um, we created Shockwave. And Shockwave was created in six months, which was lightning fast. Like, no one did anything in six months. Release cycles were 12 to 18 months, and those were, like, the fast-moving companies. So um, so it was it was fascinating and I became hooked on this um well one just working on something that you were on the edge of invention where um the it wasn't it wasn't like the internet was new the fundamentals were the same like I could read about TCP IP which was created you know when I was a kid um but, but like, for example, we, um, we released the, the Netscape plugin. And then when we wanted to create the control for IE, we hired a contractor who'd written one IE control before, right? It had just been released. Nobody had done it. And we just needed acceleration. And then he was going on vacation before we released it. So I sat down with him on the phone and I like walked through the code with him and so that I could make any modifications that were needed. And the next day, somebody stopped by my cube and said, um, I need to work on an ActiveX control. Um, and I hear you're the expert at Macromedia. And of course, you know, I was because I was the person who had spent a day learning about this technology. And the idea that I could become expert at something in a day was both humbling and kind of exciting. So I loved, I kind of got hooked on this, like always learn new things that aren't really new because they're, you know, they're just a bunch of APIs that somebody just made up, but, um, but give you new powers and let you do things that um, somebody else can't do yet. Um, mm. The other thing is I also got kind of hooked at having really wide reach because I'd done After Effects, which had a big impact on the video production industry. And it had, you know, thousands of, at least thousands of users, if not tens of thousands of users at that point. But um, Shockwave, when it was released, I remember um, Bruce Hunt was leading the team at the time. And he, you know, went up to the web people and he talked to them about um, really being able to um, accept a lot of downloads. And did we have enough bandwidth? And people thought it was just crazy because, like, who was going to download this thing? How would people even hear about it? And, um, but he made sure that we could have, um, a hundred thousand downloads a day. And everybody was like, that's crazy. <laughs> Shockwave had 300,000 downloads in its first week. Wow. Which would be big today. Right. And right. And the right, internet right. was like, I don't know, a lot smaller than, you know, the number of people on the web was a lot smaller than. Well, what were the, what were the tools and practices that you were using back in 1995? Um, well, Macromedia was, uh, the other reason I came to Macromedia was because I'd always done Mac software and I wanted to learn about windows cause I felt like you had to in the day. So the way that we did that is we had, um, every engineer had a Mac and a windows machine on their desk. Um, and then we used, um, I think we used Perforce for source code control. And C sharp you're saying it was, Since it was um, C++ windows. Oh, C++. It was before C Sharp was invented. Oh, okay. So wow. um, so a lot of it was in C. Um, Director was actually originally written in Pascal. So Director is the um, authoring tool for Shockwave. And it was originally written in Pascal, and they cross-compiled it to C. So the, like the engine in the middle of it was like, you know, machine-generated C code. Um, but then it was all wrapped in C++ classes. So... Mm. Um, so yeah, we um, and if we had to compile the whole authoring tool, it took an hour and a half. That's why all engineers knew how to juggle at that point. Uh, <laughs> you would have to like amuse yourself for an hour and a half while your um, machine compiled. It was okay. kind of delightful. So to automated testing was kind of a, a new thing. Like we worked on it for many years in the nineties. 
Um, it was, uh, and waterfall was, um, when I was in college was considered to be a best practice. It was like, instead of the mythical man month, right, where you pretended that you could build everything at once and divide it into a thousand subcomponents and divide them amount amongst a thousand people and have everybody build a different thing and have it magically go together. Um, well, let's write the specification and then let's actually test all the components together and then test them together when they're more fully featured and then so on. And that that was like an innovation in the, I guess, thing before my time. And um, so this was where we were, there was a lot of experimentation when Macromedia acquired um, the company that made Freehand. I can't remember the name of them. Um, they, they had this thing they called Cyclone, which is they had, um, which was, oh, I think, a forerunner to Agile where they would have a QA engineer and a development engineer work together. And the QA engineer would write the spec and the development engineer would implement it. And then the QA engineer would mm. test it. And of course, this worked out really well because often our QA engineers were our users because they were expert at our tools because we made platforms and creative tools. So you lived through the nuclear winter of software. Um, when you look at what's going on today, do you see any similarities to the run-up to the nuclear winter or are we in more of a fundamental boom that is going to push uh, pushes beyond anything that, that happened in the 90s? I think that um, there's some stupid things happening in the industry, but it's not as widespread. Mm-hmm. So there are, um, I remember when, um, so I, when I was at Macromedia in the early 2000s, our stock went from 120 to six wow. in like, I don't know, a month. It was so fast. And, you know, and every time it would go down, you'd be like, oh, I'll just hang on to my options because, you know, it's just a dip until everything was underwater. And um, there were two to 300 open jobs on the Macromedia website, and that was common. Every internet company had two to 300 job postings. Several months later, there were zero across the whole industry. Mm. Senior, I, senior engineers couldn't find jobs. I had an internship position open in 2002, at Laszlo Systems, I had senior engineers applying for it. Oh my god! Oh my god! Because they couldn't find, they were just you know it was like musical chairs. All of a sudden, there were no seats. So right. I don't but, think that will happen again because people are making money, like and people are providing services, and there are more people on the internet who are just doing their basic work. Right. You know, it's they're, not, they're not. It's not fake fake companies like I, re- I read this book recently about the the some of the companies that were created during kind of the pr- run up to the nuclear winter this is a book called eft companies and it's just like about all these like fake they're not even they don't even sound like real companies they just sound like fake shell companies and they yet they raised tons of money and things uh things do seem different now there does seem to be more of a fundamental um uh vector that's that's driving this stuff. Okay. Well, Sarah, it's been awesome talking to you. Do you have anything else to impart to the listeners as closing thoughts? I think the main thing that I'd like to impart to everybody writing software is there's great power in the people who write the code. This is something that led me to not consider a software engineering position when I was in college because I felt like to be a software engineer was to be told what to do. Now, of course, it's very different. There's this mythos that that software engineers have all the power, but it's true that that's really a very few number. And most of the people who are put in that category aren't even software engineers, right? They're company founders who may have written code at one point in their lives, but they're not Mm. engineers. That often you're in a position as an individual where you are creating the thing. You are making it. So beware that when someone tells you what to do, they don't understand the consequences of it as well as you do. They don't understand the opportunity. And you're not often in a position of saying no. 
but you are often in a position of saying, have you considered this alternate approach? Have you considered the implications of this decision? I have this idea for taking it in this direction that I think will meet your goals. Mm. And I think that too often we as engineers relieve ourselves of that responsibility and that opportunity. And so, so less, less, less following orders, more autonomy. Yeah. With uh, an eye to the bigger system, I think Mm. the idea that you as an individual contributor need to understand the system within which you work and the implications of your code. That's great. I really like that. Well, Sarah Allen, thank you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been fantastic talking to you. It's been great talking to you, too.